with insights and analysis of today's rapidly shifting world. Welcome to the Jewish Patriot Show with Talk Radio's premier Jewish activist, Cindy Gross, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. And now, your Jewish Patriot, Cindy Gross. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Jewish Patriot. I am your host, Cindy Gross. I am today's premier Jewish women activist on talk radio, on television. Uh, you can download us through Roco TV, Amazon Fire TV, through the Black and White Network, Real Talk Radio, and of course, Conservative Television of America. And I have some very exciting news. Starting in September, we are going to be airing our television show, airing our radio show through 20 countries in Europe. This is so exciting for me because I don't know of any other Jewish woman activist from America who is promoting both Jewish issues and non-Jewish issues to a European audience. So I want to thank you, the audience, for being so excited about the show that we were able to make this connection. And I want you to be with us as we continue to grow. So thank you very much. But as we continue to grow, we also have to discuss a lot that's going on around the world. And I have to tell you, uh, we prepared a different opening, but I'm going off the cuff and sharing my pearls of wisdom because I am Zisel Peril, and that means sweet pearl in Yiddish. I want to tell you about some things that I'm hearing and a lot of people are asking me about. This past week, I was honored to be at a very uh, private breakfast with uh, J.D. Vance, the author, venture capitalist, uh, attorney who is running for Senate in Ohio, a swing state. And as many of you know, he won his primary against Josh Mandel, who many of us know who happens to be Jewish. He was running his campaign for a couple of years and uh, Donald Trump endorsed J.D. Vance shortly before the primary and J.D. Vance won. And now the polls are showing J.D. Vance is behind. Something similar happened in Pennsylvania. You had Dave McCormick and you had my good friend Kathy Barnett running for Senate as well. Now, Kathy, many of you know, uh, as a former contributor on Fox News, a best-selling author, and a former congressional candidate. Dr. Oz came in, self-funded, and got the uh, Trump endorsement, and now polls are showing him behind. Georgia. We've been looking at Georgia since 2020 because, for some reason, a state that should be red in the middle of the South is purple and somewhat blue. I mean, after all, Atlanta is definitely blue and Atlanta is the South's Hollywood where so much film production is done and where so many of the woke politics of Hollywood come to visit and many times stay because people behind the scenes turn out living there. So we have Herschel Walker, football legend, decades old friend of Donald Trump, running in the Senate race against Senator Warnock, who really won on a fluke. I don't know what happened in the 2020 elections. Nobody really understands it except that the Trump-endorsed people lost in the Georgia primary. And now we have Senator Warnock ahead, several points. So here are the comments and the questions that I'm asked and the comments that are made to me to respond to. And just like you, I'm not a fortune teller. Uh, I'm not a paid pollster. We're just following what we hear and see. 
Who can we believe? I don't know what the answer is. I can't believe that common sense people, regardless of being a Republican or a Democrat, go to the stores, see prices, see empty shelves, and are happy. I can't imagine any restaurant owner from any background, wherever they are in the 50 states, happy with their business. They have supply shortages on the foods they need to fulfill their menu request. They have labor issues. They cannot find quality help. You know how many restaurants are complaining that they can't get steady waiters? They can't get chefs. And a lot of times, chefs are being used part-time and the same dish can be made totally different by two different chefs. Hawking's an issue in places. Safety is an issue. The outdoor dining has become an issue. I mean, it was headlines last week in New York. How many of these outdoor dining tents have become shelters for the homeless, for rats, for raccoons, and for endless smelly garbage bags that are destroying the streets of Manhattan? And it's happening all over the country. I can't imagine anybody watching the news and seeing how we are laughed at around the world. How attack after attack against Americans is not scaring everybody. I just don't get it. <coughs> then I hear, well, Republicans don't answer polls. So then why are we taking polls if they're biased already? Why are we paying pollsters to find out things that simply can't be true based on what people are saying? I would like you to write in to me or contact me through social media and tell me how many polls you have actually answered, because I can tell you, I don't even get a phone call. It just fascinates me how everybody thinks they have the answers. The only answers we really are going to have are on election day. And don't think from now until November in those races, things can change drastically. This uh, episode you are watching is right before Tuesday's all-important New York primaries that I am personally involved in. They are congressional races. There are uh, races everybody is talking about on both sides of the aisle because the Democrats have races where they could flip seats and the Republicans have races where they can flip seats. Then comes the question, can Lee Zeldin become the next governor of New York? Nothing would make me happier. As somebody who has known Lee Zeldin personally for many years, who knows, who has hosted him at multiple events, it would make me very happy to have Governor Lee Zeldin as a proud Jew, as a proud Zionist, as a proud American, as a proud Patriot, somebody who supports all backgrounds, people from all over the state, and as somebody who can talk firsthand of the victim of a crime because they didn't like the way he spoke or possibly his religious affiliation. But in one day, in one hour, I had three phone calls about Lee Zeldin's campaign. All from Republicans. He can never win. He's going to lose by 20 points. The numbers just don't add up in New York. Did you see the New York Post? He's within reaching distance. Did you see? Everybody on the Democratic side is losing all kinds of support. Donors, voters, even from their own party. Because they're not progressive enough. I heard that from a Republican. People like Letitia James are losing support. Do I really think that the millions that Kathy Hochul 
Senator Chuck Schumer, Letitia James, and Comptroller DiNapoli have can actually take over New York State? Maybe Lee Zeldin. And with that will come a new lieutenant governor. But like I tell you, and like I told them, only time will tell. Early voting has been going on in many states. I know in an area where there are five digit Republicans registered to go to a primary. Yesterday, I received notice that on one day, 45 people went early voting. That's pathetic. Think about that. Tens of thousands could go vote and 45 went. I know Republicans like to vote on election day, but maybe we as Republicans better wake up. Early voting's not going away. Mail-in ballots aren't going away. And every scheme that the Democrats will use from fake news to threats to targeting people if they're on the wrong social media uh, um, outlet is bad. Republicans make some common sense important and go out and vote. And then the day after the primary, make common sense really work and get your independent and common sense Democrats to vote with you because we must save America. Every election we say it's the most important election, but given what's going on, this really is the most important election because November 4th, we will start talking about 2024. And whoever wins on, on November 3rd will definitely have an impact on the decision of presidential candidates, vice presidential candidates, and the future local elections of 2023 and 2024. We must flip the House red, flip the Senate red, and take back the White House in the next couple of years. And this is somebody who honestly likes a checks and balances system from the Constitution. But I don't know right now if we could do that, given what Washington is doing to Republicans. Let me know what you think and share with me your thoughts. Like I said, this was all off the cuff. This was a frustration I've been having and a conversation that seems endless. And I felt I had to change the opening. And I want you to join in the conversation. We'll be back very shortly after the next commercial. Hello, this is Dan Perkins, your host for Black and White, and I'm also an investment advisor with over 50 years of experience in investing. Inflation is at a near 50-year high, and perhaps going higher. The capital markets for the first six months of 2022 was the worst performing in almost 50 years. Two generations and perhaps more have never experienced this level of inflation. You may have had some significant declines in your portfolio of investments in the first six months and are asking, what does the future hold? And by the way, what should I be doing now? I have grave concerns that we have not seen the peak in inflation. And because it may be around for some time, I want to introduce you to the Black and White Gold Ownership Program run by Ira and his team at Advisor Metals. So go to blacksandwhites.us and click on the gold bar to take you directly to Ira to work with him to see if gold is right for you and your portfolio in protecting your investments. This is Dan Perkins. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Jewess Patriot. Joining us now, we can say, is new best-selling author. And he actually was very instrumental in a lot of the policies in the Middle East for four years under the Trump administration, Rabbi Aryeh Lightstone. And he discusses what he learned as a person actually doing the work in the Middle East and America in his new book, Let My People Know, the incredible story of Middle East peace and what lies ahead. Thank you so much for joining the show. Cindy, thank you so much for having me. It's great to speak with you. 
So there are so many people, including uh, your former boss, the ambassador, David Freeman, who have best-selling books out. And a lot of them are talking about their experiences in the Trump administration and what historical events took place that uh, we, we will have ingrained in history forever. And you were a big part of it. But what I like about your book is that you did a lot of the work. A lot of people don't know your name as well as the ambassador and some other people. And you were right there front and center and you give people inside or, you know, inside looks that they wouldn't normally see. How did you come about writing the book? And, and was it hard to write this all down? Well, first of all, the title is Let My People Know. And the title doesn't hide very much. My goal was to let my people know. And who are my people? The American people. The American people are the ones who paid my salary for four years. They're the ones who, through President Trump and then ultimately to David Friedman, who put their trust that I would work very hard for them and try to return the investments that they placed in me. And I think the American people deserve to know what happens in the United States stands strongly with Israel. And I think they deserve to know about the Abraham Accords because this is one of the greatest foreign policy accomplishments in my lifetime. And I don't in any way, shape, or form in the book claim to be the architect or the designer, the owner, or the contractor, but I am the subcontractor. And in some of the places, the question was not making peace on a piece of paper, but making peace in between people, not moving the embassy to Jerusalem, but what is it like now to have 2,500 people from two different units now work together and try to represent the United States of America effectively to get it done was what I was tasked with. And what I wanted to let my people know was how unbelievable it is when America has an America first policy, when America does what it says it's going to do, and when America leads in the Middle East. And, and that's what I try to go through in the book. And I try to do it hopefully in a fun and engaging way. It's most certainly not a history book even though it walks our people through what happened through history. I was just going to say, it, it really is a quick read. It's not, uh, you know, a history textbook that you're going to have to spend hours discussing. You learn a lot in a short time, in a very easy-flowing manner. You Your writing is as if you're in a conversation, and it's very pleasing to people. And it's a book I recommend to those that don't read a lot, who want to learn more about what's going on, especially with what's going on these days around the world and how everybody is so concerned about what's going on, not only in the Middle East, but, you know, Russia and and Ukraine and China and and just around our own United States. Uh, I picked up what I, in one of your earlier chapters, something that I would like to discuss with you, the no-nonsense thinking. And it's really common sense, and it really transcends any administration, any political party. And I think this is one of the reasons why you, as part of the team, was so successful in so much you did in the Middle East. Uh, first, the no-nonsense thinking of standing with your allies. How important was that to you and your team when you were working on the embassy opening and the Abraham Accords? Yeah, I mean, this was one of the fundamental foundations of how to be successful. And what I learned pretty early on was David Friedman, Ambassador David Friedman, told me we have a very limited amount of time. Each day we're not accomplishing something is a day that is wasted. So we try to accomplish literally every single day. And if you're going to accomplish every single day, you have to decide what are you going to accomplish, right? Not every day could be the recognition of Jerusalem, the moving of the embassy to go on. On a Tuesday in July, what are you doing on a Tuesday in July to better the U.S.-Israel relationship, to further the Abraham Accords, to stand against Iran? And the premise of that is, well, we have to have fundamental principles of what it is that we do as the United States. And we're going to stand with our allies and we're going to stand against our enemies. So every single day we had an opportunity to wake up in the morning to do something with Israel, whatever that is, whether it's to cut the ribbon uh, for a new direct flight to the United States of America, whether it was to open up a new American franchise that was now opening up in Israel. I cut a lot of ribbon. The big scissors actually don't cut all that well, but, uh, but they give them to you because they're very fun and they're ceremonial. And you can do those things. But even more importantly than that, were the conversations we had with the Israelis regarding what they're doing with China. And we explained that, hey, you can't stand with America and expect America to stand with you if you're going to be inconsistent with China. 
And we said, look, India, Japan, there are several European countries that, that we can go ahead and together create fantastic trilateral relationships with. But this headlong rush into Chinese investments and Chinese uh, tender winning uh, is not healthy for our relationship. And it's not something that's going to be able to have us in good stead. But none of those conversations were ever public, nor should they be public. What we tried to do is to demonstrate, demonstrate to the world that there would be no daylight in between us and our allies. And at the same time, we were very public in our condemnation of every kind of radical Islamic terror, of every kind of Iranian malfeasance. Every time we saw something that was bad, we condemned it, small or big. We tried to make a no-nonsense policy. Evil is evil, and we'll condemn it all day long. Uh, and good is good, and we'll praise it where we can. And that's how we got up and went to work in the morning. The next one was, don't yield an inch to an adversary. And that probably was, probably out of the three points, the hardest one, because Israel and American Jews have so many adversaries. And Trump had so many adversaries within his own uh, country. Yeah, not, not a shortage of adversaries in this particular case. And I admire what President Trump did in terms of making sure that he would stand in the way of what he felt bullets that were targeted towards regular American people. But specifically in the book, I talk about the fact that we have the bigotry of low expectations for a lot of people in the region. Because we don't expect very much from them, we let them get away with a lot. And the Palestinians are a great example. Uh, they have on their books this pay to slay. They pay people more money to kill more Westerners, Israelis, Jews, etc. And that is part of their pension plan. And up until the Trump administration, it was just acceptable that that has to be how the Palestinians have a pension plan. And the United States of America should continue to be supporters of the Palestinian Authority because they're the moderate. That's baloney. This is, there are other ways to have pension plans other than incentivizing people to murder people. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of many other countries that have pension plans that that is not uh, explicitly or implicitly applied, but we were afraid to push them. Uh, I'll give you an example. When the UNRWA... When, when the United States of America withdrew from UNRWA, there was a strong feeling, I addressed this in the chapter with Ambassador Haley, there was a strong feeling that, hey, if we don't fund UNRWA, the Palestinians have no choice but to go out into the streets and riot, right? You can either go to school or you can riot. There's no in-between. And, and we, we refused to yield an inch on any of those things. And, and by refusing to yield an inch, we didn't lower expectations of our foes. We raised expectations of our foes. I'll give you just one, one more example for that. The policy wasn't kill Iran. The policy is tell Iran what it takes to become part of the community of nations. Secretary Pompeo laid out in 12 clear and distinct points to Iran. He says, do you want to come to the negotiating table? Here are 12 actions that you can take that we will take you seriously and we will welcome you to the community of nations. If you don't take those 12 steps, you are an enemy. You are a foe. You are an adversary. And why would we invite somebody to the table with us if they are an enemy, if they're a foe, if they're an adversary? So clarity with our foes was very important as well. Rabbi, the third one, if you have to say something, it means something. That, I think, is more important today even than in the previous administration, because today, from all ends, people are angry about everything. And I... I, I I think it's so important for 2022, regardless of your political party. And how did you, as a special advisor to Ambassador Friedman, uh, work with that uh, statement? So first of all, I would encourage everybody to go out and buy Ambassador Friedman's book, Sledgehammer, because the very first time that that word or phrase was enshrined in my lexicon and my thought process was when he spoke to the president about recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and moving the embassy. And he discussed it brilliantly in his book, and he should get the credit because it's his credit to, to get for the moving of the embassy, David Friedman and Donald Trump, um, which was essentially Donald Trump promised as a uh, somebody campaigning as a politician that he was going to move the embassy. And then he didn't for the first nine months, 11 months of his presidency. And David Friedman, as he describes in his book, said, look, are you going to be somebody who promises or are you going to be somebody who does? And that apparently resonated with the president who didn't want to be an empty promise politician and wanted to be somebody who did what he said he did. And this is sort of, I think, part of the issues that we've got with Ukraine, Russia, Iran, China, uh, the terror organizations running around the Middle East, the Taliban, etc., is that 
there's a lot of predictability to the United States right now. And the predictability is that we're going to be overly cautious. We're going to be um, confused, muddled, perhaps. Uh, you can say a lot of things about President Trump, uh, but one of the adjectives that would be pretty accurate would be decisive. And because there was a decisive leader at the helm with foreign policy, it helped to keep a lot of our adversaries in line because they weren't positive what the president was going to do, but they were positive once he did it, it was going to be a full measure, not a half measure. And that's pretty important when it comes to do what you say you're going to do. Couple of quick questions, not in the book. First of all, people want to know about you personally. You are a rabbi, you were an educator, working a lot with high school students. Tell us a little bit about Arie Lightstone, the person that we haven't really heard about before, briefly. Cindy, that is so kind. Uh, you know, my wife and I were involved with education. We're still involved with education. I actually think the best part of my embassy job was getting a chance to educate people about the U.S.-Israel relationship and what that means as an American. That's why I wrote Let My People Know. Uh, education is in my blood. Trying to be able to tell a story and to, and to get people to achieve their greatest potential is something innately and intensely meaningful to me. You know, the Jewish people were the people of the book. Uh, my favorite night of the year is the Passover Seder, uh, not because of its length, but because of the multi-generational ability to connect the story. Uh, I remember probably the most powerful uh, Passover Seder for me was when my grandmother was at the Seder with my oldest son. It was the only time that we had all four generations in one place. And uh, and not that my grandmother remembers what happened. She's passed on now. And my youngest son doesn't remember what happened. But my parents and my wife and I remember distinctly being able to have both ends of that spectrum being there. And that was incredibly powerful. And that's sort of what we try to live our life by. We're flawed. Everybody I know is flawed. But we're, we're trying as best as humanly possible to push forward to try to create a sense of meaning. And this, by the way, I think, as, as you pointed out, that Americans are angry. They are angry. And maybe they have a right to be angry. And I'm, I'm pretty angry myself. But I think as Americans, we should remember one thing pretty clearly. There's likely not a person who's been born in the last 2,000 years who would not trade places with any one of us at this very moment. And what terrifies me is we're so angry in this moment. What will happen if we're faced with meaningful adversity? What would happen if we're faced with a World War II moment? What would happen if we're faced with a Great Depression moment? How, how will we rise to the occasion? And part of the education that, that my wife and I try is to, is to understand that we're, we're, we're blessed. We're so incredibly blessed. And, and I think if we realize that, then we're not angry for anger's sake. We're angry to try to put that into practical action. I think that's a big difference in between the two types of anger that's out there. Okay, one word answers. Aside from Israel and the Middle East and America, what was the, your favorite place to visit? Because you did travel to other countries and you did go places that weren't as public as, let's say, Jerusalem. Right. Most adventurous was Sudan. Favorite place, Morocco. Uh, person that you did not meet that you would have liked to have met? Oh, um historically or while I was on the job? While you're on the job. Um, answer both, would, actually. Answer both. I, I, historically, I would have liked to have met Menachem Begin, who was the first conservative prime minister of Israel. Uh, the famous story of his meeting with Margaret Thatcher, if you can imagine a time, Margaret Thatcher, Menachem Begin, and Ronald Reagan. And the, what, what, a, what a room of giants that would have been. Um, and that's in our living memory. Uh, in terms of people I would have liked to have met, may he rest in peace, Prime Minister Abe. I think was a unique world leader that was around in the time that, that I was there uh, and never had an opportunity to meet. But the people I know who knew him well, like Senator Haggerty, I just spoke of him as a giant. And I think it would have been interesting to have met. Where can our audience uh, find the book to purchase? Well, at my mother's, at my mother's house. She has a lot of copies. Uh, but if you're not going to go to my mother's house, I would strongly recommend going to Amazon or to Barnes & Noble. Let my people know it's a great read. It's a great gift. If you're thinking about Rosh Hashanah, early Christmas shopping, all of these are great opportunities. Uh, and you can find the book at Let My People Know on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Rabbi Arie Lightstone, it is such a pleasure to have you. 
to please come back. We want to hear what you're doing. You have not stopped working. You are working on a lot of projects, uh, promoting Israel, promoting America, and again, promoting education and building a brighter future for all. Thank you so much for joining the Jewish Patriot. Thank you, Sandy. The federal government just reported that the rate of inflation for the last 12 months was 8.5%, close to a 40-year high. This is Dan Perkins with Blacks and Whites. Prices continue to rise on other commodities besides oil. I ask you, what are you going to do to protect your money and your investment? It's time for you to take a serious look at gold for your portfolio. If you've had enough empty promises and misleading statements by the Biden government, isn't it time for you to take control of your money and your future? Go to blacksandwhites.us and on the homepage, click the bar of gold to be taken directly to IRA and Advisors Metals to ask the question, is gold right for me? This is Dan Perkins. Michelle Obama. And if they do... Welcome, Michelle Obama! Michelle Obama is the most popular woman in America. You know I hate politics. You can forget about the disclaimer. I'm convinced that Michelle Obama is running for president in 2024. Systemic racism, pepper spray, and rubber bullets on peaceful protesters. She's following the exact same formula that Barack did to become president. Michelle was the keynote speaker at the 2020 Democrat convention, just like Barack was in 2004. Barack once ran a voter registration organization. Now, so does Michelle. That's how we change America. Also, Barack Obama based his candidacy on his personal story. Michelle has done the exact same thing. But like Barack, Michelle tells a life story that is more fiction than fact. Maybe somebody's going to discover that I shouldn't be here. Now, Come along on an investigation into the real Michelle Obama and her plan for power. I found out Michelle's father worked for the Democrat Party machine. My father, he was a precinct captain in Chicago. People would come for money. It turns out Michelle was never a part of the black community. In that household, there was fear. You talk like a white girl. You could get your butt kicked if you talk like a white girl. What was going on in the 70s was what we called white flight. The only person doing white flight in the 1970s was Michelle Robinson. You're told by a school counselor you're not Princeton material. You're black, maybe you're stretching. Michelle was no victim of racism. In fact, Michelle has been running from the black community her whole life. Hyde Park is the best neighborhood. And Michelle sold out the black community working for the mayor of Chicago. This is turning into a ghetto. You better run. They just take our home like this shit. And she sold them out as a hospital executive, kicking poor black patients out of the ER. Yeah, like that. I learned that to get power, Michelle pretends to be part of the black community she exploited all her life. Lo and behold, trying to pay your own rent. Imposter uh, syndrome. All out war between the pigs and us. And it turns out, Michelle's close friend and mentor was an anti-American radical. The politics of fear. Because of fear. Your fear. They want you to be afraid of change. We're working to change the future of this nation. We need you. Are you in? Fundamentally transforming the United States of America. And to transform America, Michelle plans to rule America come Election Day 2024. Many of us have been outraged by what we have been seeing for many years on how a beautiful model who became a first lady and a beautiful first family were actually ignored in fashion and in any kind of positive headlines they could have done for any of the work they've done. And now joining us is a best-selling author and a filmmaker who has a brand new book out and a documentary coming out. And I've seen the trailer. We're going to share it with you. It is fantastic. About the woman who thinks she's the next Hillary Clinton 
but she has even a bigger power than Hillary, and it is exposed a lot in the book and documentary. And of course, I'm talking about Michelle Obama and Joe Gilbert, the author and the uh, filmmaker, is here to discuss Michelle Obama 2024. Only the truth can stop us. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. So this is such an important topic. I've always felt that, and I'm someone who is involved in the fashion world. I do a lot of work with it. Um, And I will tell you, I have seen since the Obama years, the fashion business fall apart because they idolize people like Michelle Obama and the people that she went to rather than... uh, People like the Trumps who actually worked in the business for years way before they were involved in politics. And then we talk about education and Michelle Obama is working side by side with Randy Weingarten in their vote the truth to get out high school students to vote, which is kind of an infringement on people in our school system. And then your your book and your movie are going to educate everybody in a very, very entertaining and informative way. Tell us about what made you decide to do this project now? Well, I've been following the Obamas for years. Uh, I made a film in 2012 about Barack Obama, an alternate biography called Dreams from My Real Father. And uh, so I followed Michelle as well. And I noticed that right after 2016, uh, Michelle Obama was pretty much mimicking and copying what Barack had done before he ran for president. Uh, Barack was the keynote speaker, for example, for John Kerry in 2004 at the Democrat Party convention. And then Michelle Obama was the keynote speaker. That's the person who introduces the candidate for Joe Biden in 2020. Uh, Barack had written his book, his best-selling biography, Dreams from My Father, that he based his candidacy on. And Michelle wrote her autobiography called Becoming, this huge book deal, and went on this massive book tour in 2018. And then a lot of people don't know that Barack actually had a voter registration organization. That's how he started in politics in Chicago in 1992 called Project Vote. And then Michelle just started something called When We All Vote. She was just here in Los Angeles a few weeks ago giving a fiery speech about all the Democrat talking points. So I just see her following in the footsteps of Barack. She's got 100 million followers on on all the social media She's the best loved Democrat. She's the most popular person in the country. So I became convinced that she's running for president and was doing all the moves to prepare for that. And I realized that there had been six biographies written about Michelle Obama, and they were all just very reverent. They just kind of repeated what she said. So I decided if if I didn't look into her background, no one would. So I went and talked to her high school classmates, kindergarten classmates, teachers, professors, uh, Princeton thesis advisor, work colleagues, and I come up with a picture of Michelle Obama's history that is completely opposite of what she's been claiming all these years. And it's amazing just how much detail you have in it. And like I said, it's especially watching the trailer and watching the documentary, people are going to be fascinated by it in an entertaining way because people are really getting tired of all the fake news, including people that claim they're. Uh, not mainstream, and they're speaking the truth. I mean, there's just so much information you have that even common sense Democrats are going to start to question because they are feeling the current Democratic policies in their pocketbooks, on their streets, if they're working safely, and of course, around the world as they see America weak. Right. And uh, look, uh, I showed the movie at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. last month. And a lot of people just from the local community came out just to see a free movie in the middle of the summer at the press club. And they were stunned. They said 80 percent of this. They had no idea about Michelle Obama. So she's been peddling these stories for years, for instance, about her childhood, where she claims to have overcome all these obstacles that people held her back. She suffered racial discrimination. She was, uh, you know, racially profiled by her high school counselor. Turns out that's all complete nonsense. Michelle had a very privileged childhood. She uh, was a child of a political family. Her father was a precinct captain working for the Democrat Party machine in Chicago. She grew up in Jesse Jackson's house. She was best friends with his daughter, Santita. So she'd really seen and done it all politically as a child. 
And what's interesting is she really ran away from the black community. She went to this magnet high school an hour and a half from where she lived. Her brother went to a Catholic high school, private school. The Robinsons were not even Catholic. But Michelle openly lies about this in her book and in her uh, in her Becoming tour. She says, we went to the neighborhood schools. My parents couldn't afford private schools. So her problem is that she has no street cred. She has no experience with ordinary black Americans. Uh, she grew up afraid of black Americans. She talks about how she lived in fear of going out of her house because her neighbors would accuse her of acting white and talking white. She even gotten, talks about getting into a fistfight with a girl who called her an Oreo, meaning you're black on the outside, but you're really white girl on the inside. So Michelle's experience really was fear of black people. And I talk about this in the film and go through her whole history in Chicago as an executive, where she worked for the mayor of Chicago as an assistant planning commissioner and made 20,000 black people homeless, helping to knock down the projects at Cabrini Green. And she gave away this property to these Democrat donor developers like Tony Resco. And then I go into how she worked for the University of Chicago Medical Center. And Michelle set up this thing called the Southside Health Collaborative to prevent the black people on the south side of Chicago from getting access to healthcare at the University of Chicago Medical Center. Michelle would put them in these vans and dump them at these crappy strip mall clinics. So Michelle spent her life running from the black community and selling out the black community. But as a politician, she pretends to be, has to tell these stories of racial discrimination to gain sympathy uh, and votes from the black community, just to add insult to injury and pretends to be one of these ordinary black folks that she really exploited her whole life. So uh, I have a theory, and you probably would agree, knowing how much information you actually have, and that is that the mainstream media is deliberately not naming Michelle Obama now in every single mess, whether or not they're talking about replacing Biden or, um, you know, all the gaffes that are going on because they are waiting to see what's happening in November. They want to see if they're going to win, quote unquote, as they say, on the abortion issue or on their, you know, bogus inflation numbers that they keep saying are zero or on their victories around the world. So I I personally think that they're working every single day behind the scenes to bump out Kamala, to bump out uh, Mayor Pete, everybody who's become a disaster and are really everybody uniting behind her. And it will be announced after 2022. What are your thoughts on my theory? Yeah, I'll agree that that's uh, pretty, pretty accurate. I I think uh, don't forget, Michelle was such a political person. She was so over the top in 2008 that she got in trouble. She said, eventually she said, uh, uh, for the first time in my life, I'm proud of my country. And she got so much negative blowback that they told her she's hurting the campaign. So they told her, look, you hate politics and you just want to be the mom in chief. And so she agreed to take a step back. So as first lady, she just did magazine covers and talk shows and healthy eating, that kind of thing. But she really is a very political person. So if you look at her Twitter account, it's all politics all the time. So I think the media is is in on it. They're, you know, they're not letting on that she's she's running and they're kind of respecting her uh, laying low a little bit. But I have no doubt that after the midterms, Michelle will say something like, uh, well, you know, I hate politics, but I love our nation and I want to bring us back together and remember how much you love the Obama years. And so I'm going to form a committee because so many people have asked me to run and I'm going to consider running. And then you'll see her announced for president. That's what I think will happen. And I also think her biggest partner in this is Randy Weingarten, because they do have their uh, high school voter initiative, especially in the failing public schools where they're still pandering to uh, minorities, where minorities are actually waking up. And I just hope these minorities that are actually saying they're waking up are actually going to come to the polls in November and prove it, especially in New York, especially in Michigan. Um. So it's very key. Look, uh, Donald Trump made great inroads with minority community. Barack Obama did nothing for minorities. Uh, And that's, you know, he was elected kind of almost as a racial healer. That was the the scam they they pushed on the country. But he had no support from black people because he was from Hawaii. He grew up in a white family. 
he really wasn't considered black by black people. White people thought he was black, but black people, you know, weren't buying into it. So after three years of his first term, black people were not on board to reelect Obama. And that's when he got into exacerbating race to get votes and, and inflame the black community to come out and vote for him through the Trayvon Martin case, the George Zimmerman trial. Uh, Obama got involved with that. He started promoting Black Lives Matter and Al Sharpton. So you'll see Michelle Obama doing the same thing. She has no street cred. Uh, she really has no experience with black Americans other than being afraid of them, being beat up by them and exploiting them and selling them out. But she'll use these racial stories like one of them that she tells about her high school counselor. She said racially profiled her about her application to Princeton University, told her, well, you're black. Maybe you're stretching applying to Princeton. Well, it turns out her high school counselor was a church going assistant principal of her school who was also a black woman. So the idea that she racially profiled her is just total nonsense. So uh, you'll see Michelle also appealing to race, uh, but uh, Donald Trump's inroads and improvements uh, of life for minorities, I think, was the biggest threat to the Democrat Party. And that's why they went after him so much. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining us. When is the um, movie coming out and how can our viewers see it? Okay, well, the book version is available right now on Amazon.com. Get the book on Amazon.com and Michelle Obama 2024 is available now on SalemNow.com. You can live stream the movie on demand on your computer or you can order the DVD on SalemNow.com. And as you're talking about this, of course, with I'm thinking about 2000 Mules and what happened to that movie. I can only imagine what kind of... uh, you know, problems you're going to have promoting this and getting viewers to see it. And they should see it, especially minorities. Yeah. It's not being boycotted like 2000 mules touched on a subject voter fraud. And uh, you know, that the establishment media decided they didn't want to cover and it was a forbidden to even talk about. So this is not going to have that problem. So I do expect the movie to end the book to do well. And the book is from post till press. Joel Gilbert, thank you so much for joining the Jewess Patriot. We look forward to having you back, especially as we start talking about the presidential elections. And I think everything you're saying is on on the money. I think that Hillary is working with this as well. And it's just the tease to get people off track so that people don't even realize what's going on behind the scenes to build up Michelle. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Hello, this is Dan Perkins, your host for Black and White, and I'm also an investment advisor with over 50 years of experience in investing. Inflation is at a near 50-year high, and perhaps going higher. The capital markets for the first six months of 2022 was the worst performing in almost 50 years. Two generations and perhaps more have never experienced this level of inflation. You may have had some significant declines in your portfolio of investments in the first six months and are asking, what does the future hold? And by the way, what should I be doing now? I have grave concerns that we have not seen the peak in inflation. And because it may be around for some time, I want to introduce you to the Black and White Gold Ownership Program run by Ira and his team at Advisor Metals. So go to blacksandwhites.us and click on the gold bar to take you directly to Ira to work with him to see if gold is right for you and your portfolio in protecting your investments. This is Dan Perkins. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. What a show. We have new books new documentary, and two headliners that are bringing you the latest. But I have some very exciting news about the latest in fashion. Yes, it's that time of year that I start to get very active as a participant and as a uh, marketer, paid professional at New York Fashion Week. I've had great experiences at New York Fashion Week. I've been featured with uh, many celebrities in social media outlets. I have been part of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills show when they are sitting at the intrepid front row and then filming at Kyle Richard's store. I was very lucky to be a part of GQ and Women's Wear Daily when I actually brought Rudy Giuliani to the Zang Toy Show. I've been featured at Getty Images. And I have huge news about September 2022. 
I am a sponsor. Yes, the Jewish Patriot is a sponsor at a show highlighting modest fashion. Now, modest fashion is very much a part of the Jewish culture, the Arab culture, and is very big in trend setting right now because everybody sees those long flowing gowns and on shoulder ruffles and necks covered up, all beautifully designed. But along with New York Fashion Week up and coming events, there's a very big trend happening that is not so good. And I featured it in my latest article on Reactionary Times. And I called the article, How Woke Politics Killed New York Fashion Week. And I'm going to share some of the highlights. And of course, if you want to read the article, please download it through Reactionary Times. It's a great website with everything trending and all the headlines with some great writers you recognize from Newsmax, from Fox, and from many of the other popular outlets that you follow. So Mayor Eric Adams likes to wear his $5,000 suits and party with celebrities at the hottest, trendiest clubs and restaurants and eat all the trendy food he wants to share with all those school children while complaining about Governor Abbott sending him illegal migrants because why should Texas be responsible for all the migrants? But the reality is Eric Adams is the biggest hypocrite with his private security and private transportation because while he wants to think he's one of those celebrities sitting front row at New York Fashion Week, his state is suffering tremendously because of woke politics and his Democratic Party. Yes, New York Fashion Week was once considered the most important fashion week, especially in September, when millions of dollars are invested in New York through tourism, through restaurants, party rentals, event planners, and everybody who works in the fashion industry, from makeup and hair artists to the backstage tech people, and of course, the designers and everybody that works with them. And international tourism brought billions of dollars to New York. But like everything else, woke politics has killed New York Fashion Week. New York Fashion Week is struggling to survive for many reasons. First of all, there is an issue of crime. Nobody wants to be responsible for bringing a crew into New York Fashion Week and walking the streets of Manhattan or taking a subway and fearing that they are responsible, God forbid something should happen to a staff member or even themselves. Nobody wants to risk getting pickpocketed and losing their credit cards and having that burden. Think about it. Nobody wants to deal with the homelessness on the streets. And you know there are going to be protesters and there's going to be a lot of issues in front of the places where New York Fashion Week will stage shows. Another problem we have, the economy, the rising cost. Think about it. What used to cost a $60 dinner is probably now costing something like $120 to $150 a dinner. Times that several days, times that several meals, and you have an exorbitant amount of money just on meals. And we're not including hotels, transportation, clothing to wear, and everything else that is tied to a business expense at New York Fashion Week. Think about it. It's just costing too much. And will people get the service they need? Walk down the streets of Manhattan and store after store has help wanted signs. Restaurants, hotels, the hospitality services are struggling. I don't care what they tell you on fake news. Out-of-towners are coming in but they're not coming in for business. They're coming in for pleasure and they are able to make adjustments to their needs. People who come in for work, it's a different story. Let's talk about the fashion industry as a whole. 
You know, you ask the average person and you look at the trends of what is going on. There is a very big disconnect. When people want fashion, they think about Audrey Hepburn and her relationship with Givenchy. Givenchy however you pronounce it, because depending where you live, it's pronounced differently. So they think of Tiffany's and Elizabeth Taylor. They think of the 80s when it was just risque for Brooke Shields to wear Calvin Klein jeans. But today, fashion is so watered down. Men wear dresses on the runway. Women wear men's clothes on the runway. What's showing on the runway doesn't resonate to sales to the common person like you and me. How many men are wearing pocketbooks? How many men are wearing pink suits? How many women want to dress exactly the same as their male counterpart? And the copies. You can't tell on a social media post if you're wearing a real Gucci or a fake Gucci or if the housewives are wearing real gold or fake gold. So the industry of itself has destroyed itself. And a lot of it started on 7th Avenue in the garment center. It became too expensive to keep producing America made. And we've allowed people that we can now consider our enemies to take charge of our business. And we've also allowed woke politics to get involved because not only are they watering down the fashion needs and telling us that Hollywood celebrities, Hollywood celebrities are fashion models, but they make political statements on every runway, whether or not it's gender, preference or abortion or fighting for Palestinians or Black Lives Matter. Yes, Black Lives Matter, but so do Hispanics who make up a big part of the fashion industry and Jews who really created 7th Avenue along with the Italian and Irish immigrants. The Asians who now make up the big part of the business. And now a lot of people are coming from South America and making it a big part of the business. And with that, they're learning to make fashion shows in their own cities, in their own countries. Why do they have to come to New York when they could promote their own country and have revenue in their own areas? Another big issue is the fact that there are so many shows and you can go to New York and the next week to London, to Paris, Milan. Then there's the bridal shows. There's the swimsuit shows. There's the menwear shows. There's the shoe shows. There's just so many to choose from. Why you have to go just to one New York fashion week. You know, to many of us in my generation and even a lot younger, because let's face it, the biggest show about fashion has to be sex and the city because fashion in New York was the fifth best friend. Who could forget the front row seat that all four of them took in the first movie? And of course, who is watching all the discussion about the clothing in the new series on HBO Max? New York Fashion Week. You were all our best friends at one time. We looked up to you. We idolized you. Stop with the politics. Stop dictating to us. Let models be models. Let actors be actors. And let politicians be politicians. Because ultimately, it's the consumer you want to approach and win over. And you're not winning us over. And that's why... It was an abridged New York Fashion Week, and New York is in big trouble. Thanks for watching The Jewish Patriot Show with Talk Radio's premier Jewish activist, Cindy Gross.
Be sure to download Cindy's next program, as well as previous ones available internationally on iHeartRadio, Spotify, and in Israel on Jewish Podcasts. See you next time on The Jewish Patriot Show.